Hello and welcome to Private Practice. I have read a book for this episode, so it's one of those, however the listener would categorise the difference between subjects where I've read a book and subjects where I have not read a book. However, I don't have the book in front of me. Dan has it in front of him now, although he's probably used it to pile up his... Oh no, he hasn't. Well done, Dan. He hasn't used it as one of the books he's used as a tower to put his microphone on. He has actually kept it separate so he can flick to it and if he wants to quote from it, but because he doesn't have any quotes prepared, he won't really be able to do that. But um... Hmm. Um, I mean, just like flicking through this, this book on perversion by... Oh, goodness. Do you, do you remember the, the uh, author's name? It's not Ivan Ward, is it? He's the series. No. It's not Julius Segal. No. Can't remember this one then. Pajakowski. Claire Pajakowski. No, I didn't remember that. I do remember that I particularly didn't like this book. I can't remember if I read it again. I do also remember that I read it a lot on the tube in London, which was amusing because I was reading a book that had perversion written on the front and therefore... Uh, stereotypically stiff upper-lipped English people found that awkward in close proximity. Absolutely. They must have, they must have found it quite uncomfortable. Um, well, that was a great start, James. I'm really proud of you, the way you started the episode. I am James Hall and I am in France still for one last... I'm not going to say that because you never know. I'm here till Friday. And this time, I'm in a place called Chavy, in between Paris and Versailles. And I'm Daniel P. Brown, and I'm in the Private Practice Podcast studio here in southwest London, in the sunshine. And if you detect any apprehension or anxiety in Dan throughout the recording this week, it's because he is aware that I'm coming back to the UK on... Friday of this week and obviously everything is all about me so there can't be anything else that he's anxious about or he can't have any Mm -hmm. feelings about anything else other than what goes on in my life so I don't need to ask him how he's doing or or what's going on in his life because it's me. Welcome to this episode on perversion. It's a topic that I wouldn't say I know a huge amount about and flicking through that book uh, The Ideas on Psychoanalysis on perversion has actually made me quite uncomfortable because it seems to be that I don't know uh, so I know even less than I thought I knew if we're considering it as an idea of psychoanalysis. So today I'd like to not consider it an idea of psychoanalysis. I'd like to consider what perversion means to the everyday person on the street, the listener, the you and me, because ideas in psychoanalysis for today can just sod off. So what, <laughs> I, th- what I think we're looking at is a kind of a, um, a public idea about what is disgusting in many ways and what is abnormal to um, to someone's behaviour, uh, something that doesn't fit in with the usual behaviours of the listener, of the James and the Dan, of the man on the street, and what doesn't fit in with societal norms. Perversion 
is so strongly and closely linked with the idea of sexuality and sex and probably gender as well that actually I think it is a very relevant term because I feel like we might be in a post-perversion epoch. We might be in an era of um, yeah, post-perversionism, perhaps. But I think the idea of perversion... No, 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 is... no, no, no. What the swinging wait, wait, testicles... Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. What the swinging testicles no, is post-perversion. No, I just want you to define that before you move on. Post-perversion. I said we are in an era where the word came from, perversion, the idea of psychoanalysis, the idea of that, that there is something that is abnormal, that is to be thought of as disgusting and abhorrent. I don't know that the word means as much anymore. I think the idea is now defunct. So we can all be pedos? <laughs> no, but I mean, that, that's, I, think that's, I think that is a misgiving about the word perversion, a misunderstanding about the word perversion. It isn't just about sexuality. But I think that we have turned it over, you know, I don't know, over the last 50 years into a word that solely is talking about sexual perversion. A perversion is where an idea is twisted and distorted and um, projected or performed against societal norms. So, yes, obviously you're talking about paedophiles. I think almost everyone would call a paedophile perverse his his sexuality or her sexuality is perverse it's a, it's against what is acceptable from society although potentially scattered throughout the world there are paedophilic practices that wouldn't be considered perverse however what i'm saying is and it was more just a sort of a a jolly way of saying that actually we've we've moved on from some of those more derogatory ideas about people and difference and we're in a post perversion society what dan is saying is that he's gay that used to be illegal and perverse and now it's okay yeah and the kids can all come out as being trans or pan or bi or whatever they like uh, so <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. at, the, at the age of three they can have a sex change is that is that what post perversion is <laughs> yeah Perhaps it's an idea I should have thought through a little bit more before I came up with it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you put you put me on the spot, James. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about what is perversion in the modern era, um, because looking back, as I said, on that book of an idea of a psychoanalytical idea of perversion, it it, it just made me feel uncomfortable in in that. What would someone have gone to a into therapy with if? the idea of psychoanalysis uh, perversion in that book was considered for treating someone or for interpreting someone? Well, I, I don't think people go into psychoanalysis to be treated generally like in, in the same way that you might go into cognitive therapy. I think people go into psychoanalysis, well, at least in the modern context, like for... Um, for a multitude of reasons, but I don't think you'd go in and say, hi, uh, treat me, I'm a pervert, on the whole. You're absolutely right, it was a stupid question, I'll ask it differently. Someone okay. in therapy um, might talk about things whereby the therapist would think, oh yes, I have learned as an idea in psychoanalysis about how perversion is a construct in society and this person uh, seems to feel like they are somehow different from society or something and they are demonstrating the traits of perversion, what would those traits be and what would that person uh, potentially do that deviates from society's conventions? 
so I mean, I guess James, I, I I feel like you want us to talk about sexual perversion. That's what I'm getting the sense of. Not necessarily. Well, what what are the ideas in your head that are flying around that are flying around that might be a perverse way of being? The obvious ones are sexual ones, and <laughs> but of course. So so I'll just get those out of the way first. Uh, homosexuality is different to the convention of a man and woman, Adam and Eve, finding each other to have children and have a family naturally, whereby the man impregnates the woman and the woman gives birth to the next generation of the species. Beyond that, we've briefly... <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of any way to say this that doesn't make me giggle. I was about to say, we've touched on paedophilia. <laughs> I'm going to keep that one. We've touched on paedophilia... And you were right to cite various cultures that we probably know very little about around the world, whereby there are... uh, Certainly the age of consent is an arbitrary line, which isn't just an absolute concrete fact in every human society and hierarchy that ever existed on the planet. Uh, But there are some general areas. So, for example, in most countries, the age of consent is... The, the upper teens, so somewhere between 15 and 20. Um, there aren't many places where the age of consent is sort of like two or three. And as, as in, I don't know any country that has a child, a young child age of consent, nor can I think of any country that has an age of consent of being something like 30, as in you're supposed to stay celibate until you find your life partner and the only purpose of having sex is for reproduction. And given that the optimal time for that is around mid-20s to 30s, let's make the age of consent 25, say. That's, a, that's an idea of certain orthodox religious belief, but it's not written into law in any country that I can think of. Well, the highest age of consent in the world is 21 in Bahrain. I'm glad that my reckless, wild assumption is actually, or is actually coincidentally aligned with fact. What about the youngest? Well, it's an interesting one. Where would you guess? I'm going to guess a South American country because I don't, it's the continent I know the least about. No, you're wrong. It's Nigeria. The lowest age of consent in the world is 11, which is in Nigeria. Uh, then is 12 in the Philippines and Angola and 13 in Burkina Faso. Comoros, Niger and Japan. Oh, 11. OK, well, 11. You can legally have sex with an, el- an 11-year-old in some parts of the world and you can probably be put to the death penalty for doing the same thing in another part of the world. Therefore, these are societal constructs. But like I said, there aren't any countries, according to Dan's list, that have a, an age of consent. Well, what's interesting, though, is there are also additional Middle Eastern and African countries that have no legal age of consent but ban all sexual relations outside of marriage. However, people as young as 9 or 10 years old might be getting married in these countries. Uh, these countries might include Afghanistan, Iran, Kuwait, Libya, the Maldives, Oman, Pakistan, Qatar, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen and UAE. But that's... OK, so that's still... We're struggling to... Well, <laughs> it's not like we're looking for it, but we're struggling to find a country where it's fine to just pick up a, a five-year-old 
from a local primary school and take them to... <laughs> you see, the, the fact that I'm censoring myself shows that this is a perverse thing to say. Uh, I, I yes. can't just say that without umming and erring and thinking about where I'm actually going with that because what might seem hilarious in the moment might not seem hilarious when I come back to edit it. So, therefore, perversion still exists. I don't think we are in a totally post-perversion society. I was talking about the development of the concept, James, and I'm sure I made that relatively clear to anyone who might be listening. And, I, and I'm glad you did, and it's valid, and we'll keep referencing it throughout this episode. But it's yes, just I'm sure you will. You will. You will. It's not. No, and I'm glad it's not. But I, I think, uh, you know, when we're looking at what can really only be considered as abuse if we are taking, you know, as an average, a legal age of consent around 15 or 16, uh, and we're talking about sex, and then we are, or someone wants to be inflicting sex upon someone who is under the legal age of consent or inflicting sex upon anyone, the, the, the idea, the drive to do that, we would assume is perverse. But then I guess what perversion might be is the societal reaction to a drive that is fulfilled. Now, I suppose when we're looking at ideas in psychoanalysis and ideas of the unconscious mind and the ideas of sexual and um, other drives coming into fruition, being being made real, people, you know, someone having a sexual thought about someone who's underage, is that perversion or is it the act itself of, the act of abuse itself? And is that likely to come out? So you talked about how often in, in long-term psychoanalysis you lie back on the couch and you're invited to just talk and the therapist doesn't exactly guide you or question you or interrupt how likely is it that someone's going to lie back and say, so, yeah, I was uh, hanging out at the school gates or not anywhere near as stupid as that, just something like eventually getting to the gist of what they're saying, which is I've been troubled by thoughts I've had, which, which suggests to me that I'm attracted to young children. Yeah, yeah, I, I would imagine that in psychotherapy that's a very common thing, but it wouldn't have to be... It is very common, Absolutely, and I would think it, I, I think it's it's very common to have those kind of thoughts, but also more than that, because we are focusing on paedophilia, which isn't really actually the topic of today's podcast. Is the idea of us being ashamed of our sexual thoughts, our sexual drives and desires, our fantasies, when actually they are fantasies? Okay, so that's exactly what the subject of this is today. But I wouldn't want to uh, get right to the actual you know, hit the nail on the head without actually pulling it out and trying another nail for size. So um, you asked me, can I think of anything that's not sexual? And as soon as we started talking about the legal age of consent in various countries around the world, that just then brings me on to other things that are legal and illegal. So therefore, surely anything to do, so for example, uh, suicide bombing or just any kind of murder. um, Mm, mm, mm. That is a perverted deviation from society's conventions that uh, allow us to function and to continue as a species. Sorry? What, to, to not be... For, for society and our species to continue, the idea that it's a normal thing to go blowing each other up no, has to not. be... 
It's... Yeah, it has to not be a normal idea. Yeah. It has to be a perverted idea to think that it's okay to strap a bomb to yourself and, and, and kill innocent people. And therefore, those people that do it are displaying a perversion of normal behaviour. Yes. Hmm. So we aren't living in that post-perversion era that I hoped we were living in. <laughs> um, so, so there's something about taboo ideas, but there's also something about very damaging, um, abusive, murderous, rage-filled actions and behaviours. There's a sort of a continuum here, isn't there? Because um, to, to the average person 30 years ago, I think a man enjoying dressing up in what would traditionally be seen as female clothes would be seen as perversion even 30 years ago in the um in the 80s um but but now you know we we're living in an era where like like you've brought up before um one of the most popular shows is um RuPaul's Drag Race for years Eddie Izzard has comfortably and and without criticism dressed um in a kind of a a gender-bending way when he does his stand-up. Always are wearing nail varnish. What's the world come to, James? <laughs> but ideas that, you know, that 30, 40, 50 years ago... Sorry, behaviours that 30, 40, 50 years ago would have been seen as perverse are no longer perverse. They're almost a part of, a part of normal life. Unless, of course... And I'm just going to play devil's avocado here. Unless, of course you see this as an excellent use of youth to examine yourself, to experiment with things, to try and work out who you are as an individual. And through doing that, you wear, as a boy, you wear makeup and dresses, or as a girl, you um, wear... <laughs> grow a beard. You wear, uh, do traditionally masculine things, for example. And then you become more secure in yourself as your preferences are more comfortable and not just given to you and told to you as to what they are but then if you keep if you just keep on experimenting for your whole life you never settle into yourself you just keep on being perverse essentially into adulthood aha uh -huh. yes okay so Deviating from the norm during teenage years is a way of finding yourself. Yes, but continuing to do it for your whole life suggests that you haven't settled into yourself yet. And, then, and maybe you will settle into one of those things. So maybe take Grayson Perry, for example. He wears women's clothes at whatever age he is. He's clearly not a teenager experimenting anymore. So is he just, That is true. Is he just a sort of an open book for a therapist to say, well, you never really found yourself and you're still experimenting and your you're sort of your development was arrested and you're still playing out your teenage experimental age throughout your life and you need to work out who you are as an individual or has he worked out who he is as an individual and that's someone who wears dresses and loves it well i'm guessing that if you spoke to various different psychoanalysts about grace and perry's behavior they would suggest that the perverse act the perverse behavior of dressing not just in female attire but actually as a little girl or as a doll or as a kind of a a mannequin as a kind of a um raggedy ann is that is that the name raggedy ann type doll character with plaits in her hair and 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 big red cheeks and kind of uh almost um yeah almost like a child's doll 
Um, I'm sure that, you know, a psychoanalyst would suggest that there's all kinds of um, interpretations you can say about what, what Grayson Perry is actually displaying, what uh, latent desires or, or what repressed uh, feelings and thoughts he has. So, you know, it doesn't seem like... You know, you, you could you, you could say one way or the other. Grayson Perry has discovered who he is and therefore decides to dress like that. Or you could say he doesn't know who he is and therefore he's displaying unconscious drives and desires by dressing like that. Because it is a form of disguise, and especially to put makeup on as well, because you're quite literally covering your face, which is what people read to see your expressions and motives. I see. Okay. Well, something that you'd always I'm talking about. I'm talking about caking on makeup. I'm not talking about a tiny bit of mascara. I'm talking about sort of like theatrical dress makeup. I mean, I'm just having a little flick through the old Wikipedia article on perversion here because, I mean, it does seem to real still really like focus on sexual perversion and uh, sexual behaviours that are particularly abnormal, repulsive, or obsessive. There's very little about it being non-sexual at all. Uh, the only examples they give are perverting the course of justice, whereby you go out of your way to make sure that justice does not happen, um, which is a common law offence. Obviously, you hear that in all kinds of, sort of police and crime programmes. And a perverse incentive, which is a policy that results in an effect contrary to the policymaker's intention. And that's an economics term. But, uh, you know, everything else on the page, and I'm not really reading it, it's flicking through it, it's all about... Willies uh, and thumbs sex. and boobies and vaginas. And um, which brings me nicely to two things. One, my children. Great. And two, the naked area of the Bois de Vincent, where I was today. And so if I just said, given that I just said that to dress yourself up in a costume that deviates from societal norms is a form of perversion because I'm not... Just just let me just clarify here. I'm not talking about right and wrong. I'm not saying society are right with their dress codes and Grayson Perry is wrong, nor am I saying it the other way around, that society has got it wrong forever and finally Grayson Perry is enlightening us. I'm just saying that what he is doing is at odds with generally what is expected of male dress in the sense that people talk about it and people notice it and people refer to Grayson Perry as the man in the dress it's not like it's the it's not like no one has ever mentioned it because oh yeah whatever he's wearing a dress I didn't even notice that is a distinct facet of him so therefore nudism or exhibitionism uh, there's a difference between going to an enclosed area in a, in a woodland where you have to actually walk there and go past signs that say, that say you are entering a naturist area. That's different to running onto a football pitch with your testicles out or your breasts out or whatever. So there are different forms of exhibitionism. Uh, there's uh, my former boss who used to wear very small and tight animal print essentially sort of skimpy swimwear and would go outside onto the street on hot sunny days and work on his laptop in full view of all the neighbours. Does that count as perversion? Does that count as exhibitionism? Um, And today, all the people walking around in the woods naked, are they perverts and exhibitionists? Because that also goes against the expected dress code. Or are they just totally natural 
and they're not covering themselves up in perverse clothing. They are just presenting themselves in neutral form, and there's nothing offensive about that. Because the reaction to nudism is usually, oh, put it away, there are children around. Yep. But children generally are not scared of adult genitalia. It's more the parents are scared that someone walking around naked might be a paedophile because as soon as they look at the genitalia and it's in close proximity to their child, they think they put two and two together. <laughs> Is that Challenge me if you think I'm talking rubbish. I'm just letting you talk for a moment. Um, not, I'm not 100% sure whether you had any arguments there or whether you were just posing questions I'm to the saying, listener. I'm saying, is being naked, is that perversion or is it just your neutral state of being and is it just paranoia in parents when they say things like, put your clothes on, there are children around or what if a child were to come through here and, or why is it that the nudist area is segregated from the family play area in the park. Well, I'm, I'm guessing on one level it's, it's probably got a lot to do with religion, but, um, I, I, you know, and again, that's also... There's cultural context to what you're saying. In different countries, it's perfectly normal to um, walk around naked. If you think about, you know, certain um, African tribes, there's definitely a lot of nudity there, but I wouldn't in any way consider that exhibitionism. Um, and they don't hide and, it from the children. No, they don't hide it from the children, and the, and the children are nude too, and, it, and there's no sexual perversion about that, one would assume. So we're not talking about universal laws, we're talking about established... Yeah. Subjective cultural contexts, yeah. And perversion can be anything that deviates from that, usually in a sexual sense, but it can be in a violent sense or another form of antisocial behaviour whereby your conduct cannot be supported if everyone behaves like that for the success of your speech, your, your tribe, whatever that is. Yeah, I, I guess it's a behaviour that has an impact on the culture around it that is, is either considered damaging or is damaging. You know, the, the perversion may well be the drive to do something that is outside of your own culture's norms and also the act of doing that itself. But the perversion is, is it about the reasons why someone is doing that? So in, um, if we went to the nudist, if you go back to the nudist area and there are people who like to feel connected with nature, who feel that there is no you know, shame or indignity in being nude, who enjoy the feel of the air on their skin, who feel a certain sense of freedom, but aren't doing it to be looked at or aren't doing it to be seen or aren't doing it to show something to other people, then surely there's no harm in that. There's nothing wrong with that. And as long as the context within that you know, boundaried area is that people will be nude here, that is what you will see, people surely can't be harmed or offended by it. But if someone was to, you know, walk the streets of London completely nude, there would definitely be offence taken by other people. Therefore, that person would be considered to have behaved in a way that was perverse. Whereas if we fast forward a hypothetical 30 years where there's a nudist enlightenment and beyond that it's way more acceptable than today and people like the fact that 
they can be naked outside in warm weather and not have to be covered up in clothes, boiling hot, sweating, etc. It wouldn't therefore be perverse to walk around London naked. Um, I guess if there was a, what did you call it? Nudist enlightenment. Yes. Yeah, if there was a nudist enlightenment, I would guess so, James, and it would no longer be perverse. And I guess then there's been a sort of a, a sexual revolution and a sort of sexual enlightenment in terms of people being allowed to be bisexual, gay, you know, um, transgender, to up to some extent. There is a sort of a, a change happening in terms of the sexual uh, variety that is now allo- allowed outside of the norm, the, the norm of um, heterosexual monogamous relationships. Who are these people you're imagining who've had a change of mind? What do you mean? Uh, well, is it your mum? Is it a jihadist suicide bomber? Is it the prime minister? Is it all your friends? Is it your teachers at school? How many country? How many countries have, via parliament and via public opinion, voted that same-sex marriage be legalised? So you're talking about conventions across countries that are reflected in law. I'm not arguing against you. I'm just seeking specifics. I'm trying not to assume anything. Well, uh, yeah, if you like. I mean, to be able to give, you know, all the examples of, of every person, you know, the, jihad, the jihadi bomber who now thinks it's okay for gay people <laughs> to get married. Okay, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, we're, we're in Britain. We've said that, we've said that perversion... Um, uh, you know, I've, you know, I start every podcast by saying my name's James Hall and I'm in France, but yes, we're in Britain. Carry on. Oh, God. <laughs> we're in... We're in um, Western Europe. Western European countries. I'm actually closer to London in Paris than northern cities in England like Manchester or Newcastle, for example. Great. OK, that's good to know. Um, you're halfway home already, James. Yeah. Um... You've distracted me. I can't remember what I was saying. Well, I wasn't trying to get you to go through every single person who's ever walked the planet and tell me whether or not they've had their mind changed about homosexuality. I just wanted you to be a bit more specific, which you ultimately did, which is to say that you're looking at how laws have changed in countries determining the legalisation of homosexuality, whereas before it was illegal. And that reflects a societal change because the law just doesn't just happen (laughs) (laughs) willy-nilly. No, it doesn't just happen willy-nilly. It reflects societal changes. Um, and, of course, that doesn't mean everyone in society changes, but that idea of what is or was once perverse. I mean, if we look at the... Since the, the Stonewall riots, um, which I'm guessing was mid-60s, is that right? I mean, you're looking at the worst gay ever. I can't tell you. I am definitely looking at the worst gay ever. <laughs> uh, so gay Americans in the 50s and 60s faced an anti-gay legal system, as did... Um, gays in most countries and some still do of course um and it was kind of like the beginning of the lgbt rights movement you know the the, the counterculture the resistance um and i think the bar there was a bar called stonewall and i think the i'm gonna guess like someone like you know the local police and the fbi uh tried to storm the bar to arrest everyone and the drag queens and uh trans people gay men and lesbians like stood up for themselves and so there was a, a big old fight um a big old fight <laughs> there's a big old fight between new york city police and the gay residents of greenwich village um but focused around this stonewall bar which i'm guessing is where the 
the fight started, um, and it, it really sort of brought to um, brought to light the the gay movement. Sort of, it, it, it galvanised it. Um, oh, sod it. Let's say it's the twenty eighth of June, nineteen sixty nine. But yeah, yeah, it was. Um, but before that, you know, I mean, and, and probably for long after that as well. You know, homosexual. The idea that homosexuals could get married. The idea that you know to to be trans or to be a drag queen or to be uh, sexually different in any way would be accepted is it would be unthought of even with the you know the the small rebellion uh, starting at stonewall but now in many places in america and in all uh, uk countries uh, uk countries as in england ireland scotland wales or european countries are you ch- are you challenging me on whether i know which countries are in the uk no, I didn't know if you if that is what you were saying, UK countries, or if your mind was elsewhere and therefore you were thinking of European countries and you said UK countries. No, 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 I'm not, because I don't think all European countries have same-sex marriage legalised. If we use Chechnya as an example, President Ramzan Kadyrov denies that there are any gay men in his country. Whereas at the same time is rounding them up, arresting them and murdering them. Exactly, but then says, he denies, though, sorry, what you just said is what he does, and he denies that he is doing that on the, he's denying that he is rounding up gay men on the basis that there are no gay men. So there are two things, there are two loose threads that I'm currently clinging on to. One is, I said, my children, but we're on gay, so I want to stay on gay. So there are, there is a generation still who were born into a society where their sexuality was illegal. In ch- that's where they, their mind developed in childhood and all the years up to sort of like mid-twenties is whilst your brain is still developing in a society where their very being was considered illegal and therefore they are a perverse, deviant throughout their childhood development as an individual. And yep, so... Yep, okay. Have you got anything to say about that? <laughs> Along the lines of, it's quite common for gay people to hate themselves. Absolutely. Um, just for a moment, I'm just going to talk to the listener and I'm going to also talk to James, obviously. Um, hopefully, the last two minutes, James is going to have edited out if so, you won't know that he just went off on an interesting tangent, getting very worried that what we were talking about was a little bit boring. The strangest thing is, though, he seems to have forgotten that you can literally cut it out when you edit a podcast. But for some reason, James didn't want to do that. So if we've got any of the facts wrong so far or in the future of this podcast, please do blame James. <laughs> Back on with our podcast. So, yeah, uh, so I was brought up in 1980s uh, England um, and definitely the term gay was a derogatory term or queer. Um, being gay was kind of a frightening idea. I think, the, uh, the, you know, the, there was a few, you know, gay role models, but not many. And I think anyone born pre-1980s or, you know, in the 60s and 70s would have still had a very tough time being uh, you know, growing up as a gay man or a, a gay woman or a trans person um, in Britain. And and I do think that that has a huge psychological impact on 
how you develop the the idea of thinking that your sexual drive who you who you find attractive and the kind of sex you want to have and the what turns you on if society sees that as perverse then it's going to really affect how you grow up and who you are um and obviously james and i are both gay what was what was your experience of it james i had a potentially homophobic to whatever extent father he used to loathe dale winton julian clary or anyone like that on tv who thought they were silly femme idiots he there was never any talk of homosexuality ever so i had no reference point um, I am also, I don't want to lose my train of thought, but something I want to specifically say right now is that I often, I, I was thinking about this today. It seems like I'm using this podcast as a vehicle to talk about everything, every way in which my dad was an awful parent. I just want to... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm going to give you a minute. I'm just going to get a glass of water, James. I hope this doesn't throw you too much. And I'm back. So, so James, what was it like for you growing up in the 80s as a young gay boy, and uh, uh, I know you just mentioned your, your dad, but like, what, tell me more. Well, firstly, I didn't grow up in the 80s. I barely knew the 80s. I grew up in the 90s. Wait, how, how old are you? I'm about to be 32, I think, but I was born in 1987, so at, in, and in the middle of it. So I had two and a half years of being a baby in the 80s, so it's not like I was hanging out with Annie Lennox, unfortunately. But... Oh, OK. I want to say as a important footnote we could make an entire series season whole other podcast about how lucky i was to have two wonderful loving parents so when i say anything about my parents along the lines of um of anything negative at all firstly it's only in context that's relevant to the conversation and secondly it's because they've it's only been in the last six months that I've really thought about childhood influence on adult behaviour. I never used to think about it at all. And now I'm very interested in it simultaneously teaching children and observing childhood behaviour and trying to work out what went on in my childhood behaviour that influences my adult behavioural problems, things that I didn't... ways in which I didn't fully round into a proper adult human being and carried bad behaviour into adulthood that I'd started to notice is what uh-huh. essentially prompted me to think back into childhood and not just think about everyday problem-solving in the here and now, uh, which is something that I've only really done this year. And in the process of that, I think about, oh, what did I not have as a child? What things what situations did I have in childhood that were potentially not resolved? What ways am I still immature in adulthood? And I'm sure you can think of a long list. But that obviously involves my parents and how they brought me up and things I was subjected to and ways in, and your attachment theory that you talked about in a previous episode, ways in which I was very closely attached, certainly to, closer to my mum than to my dad and things like that. So these are all things I'm thinking about. And so they're on the top, tip of my mind and I can talk about them in, in ways where my childhood was maybe lacking or distorted or whatever. That's not to say that I had a terrible childhood and that I'm ungrateful to the wonderful, loving parents who have ultimately produced a perfectly functioning human being and did their job well done. So that's that out the way. So now I can say that in my childhood, the most ob- the noticeable thing to do with 
any reference point I have towards homosexuality was that my dad hated seeing gays on TV. Julian Clary, Dale Winton, anyone like that who would criticise, grumble, moan and want to change the channel and not want to watch the, their programmes. What about Freddie Mercury? Don't think he liked Queen at all. Ah, uh, okay. I don't th I can't think of any... I mean, like, the only kind of gay people that he would have been okay with were probably people where you wouldn't have known their sexuality from cliched camp behaviour or flamboyance or in any way. It's just men who happen to be gay who never expressed opinion about their sexuality. Men who were quite obviously gay, such as Freddie Mercury, such as Dale Winton, Elton John, all these kinds of people, he would specifically dislike their deviation from what he thought a man should be. So that was an influence in childhood. But then that was only on one side. And that side of my family are quite, to varying degrees, quite Catholic. On the other side, I was brought up with uh, my mum's side of the family who were all just absolute atheists to the core and had no interest in the moral code and therefore had no problem with homosexuality. In fact, if anything, have I ever told the story on this podcast? My cousin is also gay and he uh, came out and my aunt immediately went to some flamboyant gay hairdresser in Covent Garden and sat down and said, right, tell me about your life. <laughs> My son is gay. I want to know everything. <laughs> Wait, so which aunt is that? The one who suicided herself. Your favourite aunt? Yeah, well... <laughs> the oh, one that... <laughs> caught you there. The one that I spent... A... The one that had a huge influence on my childhood, yes. The one that we regularly talk about. And do you want to just say hello to her? Say hello to her burnt, charcoal. <laughs> no, James, you don't have, to... have to do it like that. You know, just an ode to her in memory of her. Okay, an ode to her. Um, an ode to her is... Um, I've got a thing or two to say and I'm irritated that you suicided yourself and I can't come round for dinner and say those things. Right. <laughs> I kind of meant just mention her name and say, hello up there or hey down there. She would hate the idea of me saying hello up there. She was quite... I mean, she, like, she was a ridiculously sort of religious atheist, I would say. Well, who's laughing now with her up there in heaven, eh? <laughs> is, it, is it you or is it her? So mostly in childhood, I was familiar with the idea of gay men are silly, and that came from my dad. But then in adolescence, I was familiar with the idea of, oh, actually, it's fine. And then don't forget, my dad died when I was 16, and that was when I started to realise that I was definitely gay and it wasn't a phase or a weird thing that is relevant to other people and from that moment on my dad was dead and I could go on in life becoming the person I wanted to be with absolutely no paternal criticism no uh, the superego was totally blank on those pages of that chapter of the book no one was saying to me you're a deviant so you never felt like a pervert as you were growing up? Never, and I never understood the idea of internalised homophobia right into my 20s when I had to get someone to explain it to me. But then I don't think that what I've just said is also entirely correct because what I mean is I, I didn't have parental influence whereby I was living up to expectations of anything like that. I never thought about, oh, I'm going to have to come out to my parents. There's all those kind of traditions cliches and things were totally irrelevant to me but 
the bigger one was just as relevant to me as it is to anyone else, which is I was in a society where still, when I was younger, I didn't really know anyone of my generation who was gay, except for one person who was quite obviously flamboyant and only hung out with girls. And I thought, well, I'm not like that and I don't want to be aligned with that cliche. And so I wasn't, I had nothing to do with him. So therefore, textbook internalised homophobia, potentially. I also never told anyone that I was gay right into my 20s and was actively happy when I could, pick your word, pull the wool over the eyes, deceive, whatever. When people thought that I was straight, I thought that was an achievement because I was not being, I was not wearing my sexuality as an identity. You weren't recognised as a, as a flamer. I wasn't recognised as a pervert, a deviant or anything like that. I could just be treated as an individual and not... Ha- I just didn't want... Pe- I didn't want anyone to think James Hall gay before they started to think of anything else to do with my personality. And another thing was that when I was younger, I was very defensive. There were all sorts of ways in which I didn't develop very well, I think, in childhood, I talked about my antagonism with institutions believing that they wouldn't let me in. On an individual level, I just assumed everyone was a homophobic bigot and they hated me and I I was some kind of victim and I had to either prove myself or gay was the elephant in the room that I didn't discuss so that I didn't have to deal with their, in my view, inevitable homophobia, that they're wrong and they're going to make my life a misery. But if I fool those idiots into thinking I'm straight, I win... So all of that happened to me in childhood, not childhood, teens and 20s. I think that there's a lot of ideas in that that the listener could definitely um, relate to. There's a, there's a lot that you said that I can definitely relate to and it, and it kind of poses the, or brings around the question or the conversation about how damaging the idea of perversion can be to the individual, the idea that society sees something as perverse can really psychologically damage someone, whether it be a phase someone is going through or an experimentation or a a part of their development. If it's to do with gender, sexuality and identity, if there's a part of someone's internal world or part of a person's personality that is seen as perverse and that person isn't able to express that or talk about it or find support or someone who can nurture them and and guide them through it, then then potentially that's exceptionally damaging. But I think on the other hand, there will be this question, seeing as you, you, you at the beginning of the podcast jumped straight into perversion as being about, you know, paedophilia and this extreme end of perversion, um you know, rather than the idea of having sexual kinks or fetishes or having a having not the most common sexuality, i.e. like heterosexuality. You, you talked about paedophilia. And I think the idea for a lot of people who are not gay or who are not trans or who are not bisexual, I think they would find that it's a step in the wrong direction towards paedophilia. It's a step in the direction towards God knows what. It's a step in the direction to allow abhorrent sexual practices to be the norm and it would be very difficult to argue that it wasn't and there are a number of gay people who have grown up thinking that they are a step in the wrong direction and they need to keep it themselves under control (laughs) dan has just pointed at himself 
Was that a, no, no? I want to. Was that a joke, or was that was there? Is there an element of that that informed your youth? No, there's, I mean we we spoke about this in the last episode, or sorry, the last episode that I listened to. God knows which episode that actually was. <laughs> but it's the idea that you you know that for for myself there was a there's a real fear that if I was to allow myself to be gay allow myself to identify as being gay and tell other people I was gay, what would that lead to? You know, what 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 horrors am I unleashing, basically? Um, but I did, and it hasn't so far unleashed that many horrors. I think it's one of the best things. Let me just be silly and clichéd about this. I think it's the greatest gift that I could have had in life, and to not be silly and clichéd about it, the reason for that is that growing up as different to societal convention and gay will always be different you can eliminate homophobia with a magic wand but you're not going to have 50 percent of humankind being gay because you have to acknowledge the biological fact that gays are a minority but forgetting the homophobia for a minute i don't consider myself as identifying as gay and therefore i am the same as all the gays because i was I had to come to terms with the fact that I was different as a teenager. It helped me no end to, like it does with any gay person, to have to question everything and to to work out who I am as a person as opposed to thinking, oh, well, I'm just normal like everyone else. I don't have to think about who I am. Why would I have to think about who I am? I had to think about who I am. I was different. I had to think about, oh, well, what does that mean? What are the implications? Who am I? Do I like that? Do I not like that? I don't know. What am I going to aspire to in life? All this sort of thing. The more you question yourself, the more you can have better conviction in your development as an individual and the more you become creative and intelligent and certainly so we're talking about two things here societal things and biological things and i think the scientific evidence suggests that gay people skew towards being clever and creative i mean if you think about singers artists actors show-offs <laughs> in any format um you don't need me to tell you that they skew highly towards gays or any, you know, perverse deviance in society, and has been for a long time. So the idea of Elton John is a good example, the idea of him coming out and everyone being surprised, oh, he was... As if, as if oh, what a surprise, a flamboyant singer is a homosexual. It's not, a, it's not so much that he is gay and therefore he is a flamboyant female Nancy boy one step away from being a pervert, as would be the bigoted explanation. It's more that he has to define his character and therefore he's more likely to be creative. He's more likely to come up with something original that is Elton John. Um, There's a difference between biology and society. Biology states that homosexuals are a minority. Biology states that in order for a... And when I say homosexuals, anything within whatever kind of... whatever is the current rainbow, um, anyone within that minority has to go against the tide to develop their character. They can't just copy society's norms and be like that because they're not going to just 
find a woman, have a Christian marriage and bring up a baby. They are different. So therefore they have to work out who they are. And that just requires, that's a sort of a rite of passage that every gay person has to go to, which tends to skew brain development towards creativity and possibly intelligence. Although when it comes to intelligence, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so so I, I, think, I think you did eventually get to the point that there are no societies that I know of that are predominantly inclusive, traditionally, of less frequently observed sexuality so the whole lgbt plus spectrum there 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 are no societies that i recognize or that i know of whereby you can happily be brought up to be gay lesbian um to identify as male female or be more fluid with your gender it's something that is only now really being understood and experienced on the whole as a society there is no society where any form of rainbow spectrum, whatever you want to call it, is the norm. So therefore, there is no society where a child grows up, for example, a gay man thinking, I can just be lazy and copy society's archetypes. That everyone who grows up gay has to, to some extent, question themselves. Even if they grow up in the current society, there's no getting away from the fact that you're a biological minority. But then there is a societal difference between the olden days when you really had to work hard against a society where your sexuality was illegal and most people did not accept you, compared with today where, depending on where you live and who your parents are and what all your various variables are, it is feasible to think of someone who grows up today where their, for example, homosexuality is just not a problem at all to their development as an individual. They don't have to go against the tide of the law. They don't have to go against the tide of their parents. They don't have to go against the tide of their friends and the wider school community. In the most gay-friendly places, the worst fear they would have is potentially the... Um, the attacks that you hear about now and then from kind of radical extremists who think that gays are wrong and who go out and throw acid in their faces and things like that. That's that sort of like the worst case scenario. And that's probably something that you haven't seen in person. It probably hasn't happened to you. It's probably something you know about through the news, along with a load of other abstract concepts. The reality that you face on a day-to-day basis in the playground, at home, with your friends, with your family and with the law is that you being gay is okay. So that's a societal difference of today that didn't exist before. Whereas the thing that hasn't changed is the biological fact that gay people have always been a minority regardless of what anyone thinks about where they stick their genitalia in adult life. (laughs) Yeah. The autist in me wants to make that distinction. The autist in me is now thrilled that that distinction has been made. Good. Do you want to challenge it? No. Good. Dan, you know the essential uh, gay enlightenment that I had as a 20-year-old, I think, um, which also coincided with my CBT 
session that we talked about in the CBT versus Freud, whether or not it was CBT, going to an NHS person and talking about myself, whatever it was, uh, that coincided with, let's call it my gay enlightenment, which, <laughs> which was the first job I ever had was in a gay bar. So having gone mm-hmm. from, having gone from um, what we can assume to be the real cause of my internalised homophobia, which is not turning my father's opinion into my internalised superego necessarily because I had the overwhelming contradictory influence of the other side of my family who loved the gays possibly too much. Um, the (laughs) The real thing was growing up in school where it was outside of the norms and I had to, internally in my mind, I had to defend myself my character, my being, as I, was, in. as I was working out my sexuality. Um, I got to a p- position where I didn't want anyone to know and I liked essentially deceiving people and I liked people assuming that I was straight. I thought that was a badge of honour. Yes, I've done gay well. I'm not the person who's going to get bullied. I'm not going to have homophobic attacks because no one knows I'm gay. I'm successfully managing to live my life without the controversy of being a limp-wristed Dale Winton. The, the thing that threw that out the window or started to was my first ever job being in a gay bar where I was just thrown into a world of screaming, young, drunk gay men looking for sex. <laughs> my whole life had, has been surrounded by people I assumed to be straight and I assumed to dislike me because I assumed they had homophobic core beliefs. Let, let's call them core beliefs. Let's... And I then went into a situation where I knew that everyone was gay and that they loved bumming. And even though this was all new to me, I just assumed, oh, here's this enlightened place that I've been looking for my whole teenage life. I've finally found it. I can just relax now and it doesn't matter. I see. So you sort of had an overnight switch into a safe place. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a safe place. <laughs> an overnight switch into a... Um, a subculture that would accept you. One thing you said earlier to do with gay is just a stepping stone towards paedophilia. Um, I think that is the essential problem of bigotry coming from an ignorant position, the inability to distinguish between certain perversions from society's expectations having a kind of abusive effect, for example, on innocent children who don't understand sexuality or an abusive effect, if it's not sexual, whereby you are physically abusing someone, etc., etc. Those kind of perversions are justifiably considered bad, either by society rule or by the law, whereas gay men, their sex lives are largely irrelevant to the functioning of society and the continual reproduction of the species that is predominantly heterosexual and the education of children whereby what gay men get up to is largely irrelevant to children in their development. So, so basically, the, 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 in my view, the only real problem is how do you deal with bigoted attitudes that don't separate those two things, that assume homosexuality or any kind of perversion like that is just a stepping stone towards the ultimate ones such as paedophilia. That will always be the problem of overcoming 
hatred and intolerance in society. I think we should begin you ending with your children. Well, the reason I wanted to end with my children is just because in, I was teaching a class of children, they were seven or eight years old, and I was talking in French, and I accidentally said, referred to the kids in my class as my children in the way that French people would refer to their offspring as opposed to my students or my pupils i was saying the way that you would say in french to refer to your your offspring and the children obviously found this hilarious i also found it hilarious um but that's not what i'm actually talking about that was just the, that was just the joke of me referring to my children but my children more specifically my pupils in class the correlation towards I'd say predominantly boys who love to scream poo-poo, pee-pee, caca, which caca being French for poo-poo, was extraordinarily high. Pretty much in every class I had someone who found, who I had a child who found bodily fluids hilarious. Let me just prompt Dan with two things. One, therefore, children are not scared of genitalia, they're fascinated, so the idea of the fact that they're just innocent minds and they can't possibly cope with the idea of genitalia yet is ridiculous because they're fascinated by it. And number two, but then maybe they're too young to understand anything to do with sexuality, therefore it should be kept from them until they're old enough to understand it. I don't know. Let's see what Dan thinks. But number two is... What is number two? I don't I think I, just me laughing along with my children saying poo-poo, pee-pee, caca in their class. <laughs> so number two is caca. <laughs> yes. I'm feeling incredibly dissatisfied with today's episode. And it's it's not because I'm not feeling critical or negative towards what we've done. I think that the topic is... It, it, leaves, it leaves me with a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense of not being able to get to the, a root of anything, not being able to really identify anything that helpful. Um, ideas have come up about how... Uh, society's expectation of um, an individual's sexuality and gender and identity can be perverse and how damaging that can be. I think we've we've started to talk about something, about how our parents, how society, how religion, how law affects the way that we are able to develop psychologically. And, And that's a really important idea, but I don't think that this episode, you know, the episode entitled Perversion, has even begun to scratch the surface about what perversion really is, and definitely not from a kind of a psychoanalytical point of view. So I'm left with a strong sense of dissatisfaction. I also don't think that we managed to clarify a lot of the ideas and thoughts that even we have over this, which is, you know, not to criticise, but just we haven't got there yet. Um, I don't want our listener to feel like we've opened up a can of worms and thrown it at them. Um, And I think that there's ideas in this that we will be coming back to in future episodes because I think identity and and individual development, sexuality and gender should be taken outside of the context of an episode on perversion because I think they're way too important and way too personal and way too... um, (laughs) uh, way too relevant to the kind of topics that we're talking about to just but all done <laughs> we've done that now we've done perversion we talked about you you're gay we all think you know society all thinks you're a 
bunch of perverts, but it's okay because we've got gay marriage now. On with the show. You know? well, that's, that's not the conclusion we made, but here's the extent to which I agree with you. It's a huge subject. We have... I, I tried to make a really good joke about dipping in, but not full penetration. <laughs> I'll leave that to the imagination of our listener. But uh, So it's a, it's a huge... It's a very deep hole, and we haven't made it all the way to the end of it. So uh, to, that extent, uh, to that extent, I agree with you. To this extent, I disagree. The bits about the difference between perversion having an effect of abuse upon someone and just being a deviation from an arbitrary current or long-standing societal archetype, trend, etc., is something that, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most useful things that I've learnt in order to develop as a person. The idea of, I mean, personally for me, the idea of internalised homophobia um, was an eye-opener. Most people probably are fully aware of what that is. Most gay people are probably fully aware of what that is much younger than I was when I started to question it, as in what is this internalised homophobia that people are talking about? That doesn't make sense. Homophobes are straight people who don't like me for being gay. I'm gay. I cannot be homophobic. That, I, that was my attitude for probably 27 years of my life. And only now, really, in my 30s, I kind of am starting to understand the concept of internalised homophobia. But maybe you're right in the sense that it's too big for just one episode. But I think that the, 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 that's essentially what I wanted to get to. As chaotic as you may think it is, that was actually written on my yellow post-it note in front of me. And the idea of the difference between society and biology in a, the context of developing as a gay person, I think that is um, something that I don't think gay young gay people, like a gay teenager, a 17-year-old person coming to terms with his sexuality doesn't necessarily differentiate between society and biology. I, I want this to be a conversation. I'm not just announcing these things. You s seem like you don't agree with me, but I don't know that because that's in your head. Um, I'm not 100% sure what you mean. Well, I talked about the difference between... All gay people have to come to terms with the fact that they are a biological minority and most human beings are heterosexual. But, uh -huh. but at the same time, for argument's sake, no two gay people have the same societal experience of being gay. Every gay person has the same biological reality. No two gay people have exactly the same societal reality. But you and I have had very different experiences, for example... Yes, yes, we have. But all I was saying from uh, that seemed to trigger this this part of uh, your your response to me was I was saying that I was very dissatisfied with a lot of these topics being in the episode on perversion. That's all, and that it didn't it didn't answer I'd... the idea that we talk about coming to terms with your sexuality as a healthy development in your teenage years. And we label that perversion. That's what you're dissatisfied with. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel P. Brown labels the healthy development of the individual character but through your sort of like um, childhood development, through your teens, into your 20s, when you become a full, fully functioning, hopefully rounded, uh, healthy adult character. We have labelled that perversion. <laughs> 
we've put it on we've put it in the episode on perversion okay i understand why you're dissatisfied with that and also there's you know there's there's been uh, well you'll listen back to it you're going to edit it james to our listener i feel like there's a lot of ideas here that we're going to be coming back to i I want you to know dear listener that i'm not dissatisfied with you (laughs) um so today we've looked at some really interesting ideas it's brought up a lot of feelings in me that I haven't really been able to verbalise and it's also brought in lots of questions to my mind um, about my own experiences and and about where we do go as a society in terms of perversion and and also even the idea which we haven't got time to talk about but the idea that actually people who are who develop with serious paedophilic internal world and drive do still need to be understood that they do need to be helped and 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 the idea of perversion and the idea of demonizing of the experience of going through that is that there's something deeply unsatisfactory about that because perhaps people who didn't who who were developing like that but didn't feel like they would be vilified if they were to speak about it or ask for help about it might not go on to abuse or assault or coerce or manipulate or become this terrible perverse person and that's an idea we haven't even got into if you see so there's also that and it's also I can imagine it being very difficult to speak about without sounding like you're in support of the perversion itself uh, so this whole episode has left me feeling disheartened. Anyway, uh, for the benefits of rounding up, let's just say that what an interesting episode. Thank you so much for your insights and thoughts there, James. Um, do you have anything you'd wish to finish on? Willies, bums, boobies, vaginas, poo-poo, pee-pee, holes, gays, lesbians... Uh, touching, fingering, voyeurism, strap-ons, leather, kinky, fetish, orgy. I mean, there's probably lots that I've missed out. Lots, lots, lots of things. So from this, the fourth improved season of <laughs> Private Practice podcast, uh, thank you to the listener and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>